With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, host of the Blatant Homers and Podcast, part of Sooner Sports Radio and the Vsporto Network. Lots going on uh, around the NCAA with regulations, reforms. Uh, a lot of people talking about satellite camps and uh, you know social media being deregulated, all that stuff. So uh, we've got a bit of a blast from the past here. Our good friend John Infante, uh, NCAA jurisprudence expert, uh, joining us tonight to uh, break down some of all the stuff that some of the new stuff that's uh, been going on. So go ahead, welcome on, John. What's up, man? Uh, not much. Good to be back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, happy to have you on. There's so much going on right now, and uh, the big one that uh, everybody's been talking about lately is uh, the, sat- the satellite camp issue. Now, in, in a lot of ways, this is getting somewhat um, overblown, I think, just in terms of the actual effect of these camps. But clearly, it did become kind of a flashpoint, uh, you know, within within the NCAA membership, given uh, how how hard uh, Jim Harbaugh was going down there and the uh, Southeast, the uh, SEC territory. So I guess in general... Um, you know, you looked into this pretty closely. We, we all know that, that eventually the ban went through. Uh, I mean, my read on this was it was a case where, um, you know, really what would have ended up happening is that you would have had this kind of turning into another arms race where, you know, all, much like you see maybe with facilities or whatever, if the SEC decided to, um, do, you know, allow their uh, schools to go ahead and open up camps, you would have seen uh, all of them kind of uh, ramping things up, and then, you know, it would have kind of become just another cost of doing business. Yeah, and it's it's not so much an arms race in terms of money because, you know, the way that Harbaugh was doing this and the way that some of the other coaches jumped on the train was to to work with a high school or a group that was actually going to put on and, and run the camp and do the registration and get the facility. Um, and they were just going to come and be the coaches who were, you know, ostensibly providing uh, instruction and teaching, which is the, the purpose of the camp according to NCAA, but we all know also evaluating and being a presence in that recruiting market. Um, so really it's this arms race of time, which is yeah. that coaches felt you know the the few weeks off in the summer that they get when they can't do camps the players aren't back yet and uh you know they get kind of a nine to five job where they go into the office um you know do film prepare for the season they're not out on the recruiting trail maybe they have some donor events or something like that but they get kind of a normal life of yeah of you know a normal person and a normal job um and that was going to go away because they would have needed to been at a camp or clinic every week they could possibly get away from campus that somebody was willing to put one on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and obviously I think that that was kind of the concern, but you know, I, I think from the recruiting advantage part of it, once uh, it, it's kind of seemed like once everybody opened up to it, you know, you're going to be just, you know, kind of piling these camps one on top of another at some point. Well, yeah. And I think we would have had uh, essentially, um, you know, there's not even a recruiting advantage, like you said, a cost of doing business. Yeah. Harbaugh sort of drew attention to it because he was he got the first mover advantage, 
and he went in hard with this. This was not some slow rollout. Yeah. Um, he felt he you know was behind his rivals and needed something to catch up and found something that he felt he could really capitalize on. Um, but eventually, if it's the same, you know, every uh, you know FBS head coach or a representative from every staff is at every single one of these camps. It's no longer about, you know, we're getting an advantage or we're finding a new player we didn't see before. It's we just need to be everywhere so that no recruit can say we weren't there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and I mean, you know, as an Oklahoma fan, uh, you know, I mean, I followed this, you know, issue. I mean, you know, OU, Oklahoma State, they've been doing these camps, you know, for a few years now. But, uh, you know, they certainly without nearly as much fanfare and not to the same extent as uh, Harbaugh. So I think it was a matter of just kind of uh, – people realizing where it might be heading next. But I know that you looked through kind of like the voting transcripts and whatnot of all this. I mean, did you learn anything from going through those? Well, I think the, you know, the groups that were against it, you had kind of the, the usual suspects. Um, you know, obviously the ACC and the SEC were the two schools that made proposals um, with the ACC making an even more kind of expansive you know, more limits on camps than the SEC had proposed. Um, so they were obviously going to support this idea. Obviously, the Big Ten was was not, um, unless everybody uh, had sort of ganged yeah. up on Michigan. Um, the MAC, you can sort of see, is following along with the Big Ten. Uh, you can certainly see how it advantaged the MAC schools from a revenue standpoint from getting players to their camps if they can get these local Big Ten coaches to appear at their camps. Um same with kind of the American and the CUSA. The two that really don't fit are the Mountain West and the Sun Belt being for the band. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, anything that's an investment of time rather than an investment of money is a place where that, uh, you know, a mid-major program, that program that doesn't have the financial resources of one of these kind of power conference schools can make up that ground. If they're willing to put the work in, if you get a you know tireless recruiter of a, of a coaching staff who's willing to go to all these camps, then they can make up the you know flashy you know they can sort of make up that difference that the mm-hmm. the big schools have with the kind of flashy camps that attract recruits to their own campuses. So why they would uh, decide to sort of limit an opportunity to make up some ground on their bigger rivals, you'd have to basically, I think the best explanation would be that a majority of the schools in the conference may have felt that, yeah, they would be gaining on the big conference in their backyard. So the Mountain West may be gaining on the Pac-12, but if a majority of Mountain West schools think they're going to fall behind other Mountain West schools, that's a reason to say at least like we still got to be competitive in the conference first before we can go compete with the big boys. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So, um, you know, Oliver Luck recently said this issue would likely be revisited, you know, and you, you mentioned, uh, how a lot of these conferences you'd have, uh, you know, a, a, uh, majority of schools, you know, being in favor or against the, the band, what have you, uh, sounds like there's been some controversy in the PAC 12 as to how UCLA's athletic or, uh, athletic director, uh, voted, uh, you know, uh, obviously the PAC 12 vote against this, or pardon me, voted for the ban, uh, which was uh, not what he had been directed to do, Dan Guerrero, that is. Um, so anyway, it's, it, it, it sounds, though, like, you know, this will be kind of maybe reopened. Uh, 
obviously, even if the Pac-12 changes its vote, that still would not be enough to necessarily overturn the ban. But can, can you give us an idea of what the, that process would look like? So, so the proposal has been passed, but when you know an NCAA proposal is passed by what used to be called the Legislative Council is now the Division One Council, um, it is not immediately in effect, and it still has to go through two more stages of review before it's adopted and final, and you know can't be touched except by going back and amending it through a brand new piece of legislation. So the first is that the board, seeing this controversy, the the uh, NCAA Board of Directors or Board of Governors now, may say, we are going to suspend this proposal or we are going to modify it and send it back. Um, partly maybe because of this pa- this controversy in the PAC-12, they may be more inclined to do that, that even though it doesn't change the, the outcome of the vote, it's still, you know, the will of the schools was not properly expressed. Yeah. Um, so they may... So they may intervene there and either modify or change or um, or send the proposal back. The other thing is the override process. So the voting in the councils on the conference level, conference send reps, um, especially at the FBS uh, specific legislation for just football, where the other reps that are now in the council, the conference commissioners, the faculty athletic reps, and the student athlete reps, um, they don't get votes in this FBS legislation. Uh, so it's purely the conferences that vote. But in the override process, it's the individual schools. So while a major and you have this weighted voting uh, where the power conference schools have a, you know, their votes count for two and the, the uh, group of five conferences count for one vote. Um, but in the override process, it's individual schools that request foreign vote on the override. So if the uh, votes happened where the conferences that were in favor of the ban were narrow majorities and the conferences that were uh, against the ban and wanted to keep satellite camps were large majorities or unanimous. It may be that there are actually enough schools that uh, want to keep satellite camps that they could get the proposal overturned in the override process. It's just that they were gerrymandered into the wrong conferences for this vote. Yeah, but like, who the hell makes policy this way though? Like, this is so just bizarre uh, a way of doing. I don't know. I mean, it, it just seems so so strange. You know, the idea that oh, all of a sudden now we're going to overturn this rule that we just made. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, so this has happened, and it is a it's a very football specific problem. Uh, where football has tended to be one of the more um, conservative sports when it comes to uh, deregulation or even change in general. Um, Everybody is so worried about any change causing an advantage for somebody else. Mm. So there's been a couple times where the NCAA has deregulated something like uh, phone calls, right? They've proposed, you know, we're going to deregulate the number of phone calls and football coaches are basically saying, no, like we recruit hundreds of kids, you know, especially in the junior class We're you know, we're tracking maybe it's not con- inconceivable. They're tracking a thousand kids yeah. uh, for, you know, in the sophomore and junior year when they start making contact and, uh, 
uh, we can't have, be calling them all. <laughs> and, you know, uh, an example of what happened with the satellite camps thing was when the NCAA proposed uh, for, you know, and passed a rule allowing non-coaching staff to call recruits. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. Alabama and Auburn immediately went out and hired people to just do that. <laughs> which sort of scared everybody the same way that Harvard jumping in on the satellite camp idea sort of scared everybody about what the, what the end game might look like. So, and that proposal got overridden. Um, I think, you know, part of the problem is with the new, uh, with the new legislative structure and the whole new structure of division, division one beyond just the autonomy piece. Uh, and the fact that this is all new, I don't think a lot of the same deliberative uh, bodies that existed before are still kind of involved there. Um, it, it, the whole idea is that the NCAA is going to move faster, uh, put ADs and more people um, who are kind of practitioners with the rule rather than having mostly compliance people do a lot of the legislating. Um, and again, it's kind of like lawyers. If you let lawyers do all the legislating, you get rules that lawyers like. Yeah, um, yeah. So if you let compliance people do all the legislation, you get rules that compliance people like that maybe coaches and ADs aren't, aren't as happy with. Um, but that process had lots of input, lots of opportunity for the Football Coaches Association, um, lots of opportunity for ADs to weigh in through the, um, the other Division One councils like the Leadership Council, which was all ADs, mm-hmm. um, and the, the sort of football working groups and oversight committees that existed. I'm not sure how much of that structure still exists and how well it pipes in all these opinions um, like the old system did. So while the old system was slower and was dominated by compliance in some ways, the new system may produce more results like this where as people see an issue, their mandate is to move fast on it. And sometimes when you do that, you you get a rule that has unintended consequences that you then need to go back and fix. And, you know, you brought up, you know, the changes that have come as a result of autonomy. And, you know, one way that this could kind of be worked, though, that you mentioned and and I thought was pretty interesting, you know, is potentially instead of, uh, you know, opening up satellite camps again to everybody, you know, allowing schools to, for example, pay for, you know, uh, players to come visit their camps as opposed to, you know, sending the, the coaching staffs out. I mean, you know, what would be, you know, I mean, it would, do you think that something like that would ever get any kind of traction? Under the current system, I, I don't think so because um, that would be a massive expense for yeah. the group of five. Um, that they're, I don't know, no, they doubt they have that, can scrap that together in a budget. Um, to do that at at scale, there'd be a lot of um, power conference teams that would be a massive expense for too. I mean, right. So what you would need is uh, the next whatever our next iteration of autonomy is, because you know, NCAA governance structures have a lifespan of about eight to ten years. So it's conceivable by the end of this decade, and certainly into the you know before you know twenty twenty three or so like that that we're going to start to see the agitation for more autonomy, including autonomy within FBS rulemaking, right? Mm-hmm. So right now, the the power conference schools can vote as a block and can completely dominate that legislative process. But if they're at all divided, they can't make their own rules for themselves uh, the same way they can with the autonomy rules that apply to all Division One sports. Uh, so 
the rationale would basically be because you have to understand like where the camp rule fits. The camps are an exception to the NCAA's blanket prohibition on tryouts. So the NCAA says you cannot have tryouts for recruits. And it says under that the exception is you can run camps with the idea being that the purpose of camps is not for recruiting, that the purpose of camps is to instruct and teach and provide this expertise that coaches have to the community rather than just for their own players. The idea would basically be that we we sort of make it explicit that yes, camps are recruiting. They have been for a long time. It's kind of a fiction to say that um, an elite you know football quarterback camp is a you know in any way anything but a recruiting yeah. opportunity. Um, the players may feel they they improve about it, and there there does have to be some instruction, but the primary purpose is recruiting, and we basically just say. There need to be there need to be tryouts allowed, and you know if you wanted to make it something that wasn't quite as much of a of an expense, we could say that, for instance, um, you can work a player out as part of an official visit. So you may see a paid camp where the school is paying for the all the players to come. What it really is is a big official visit week in the summer that they pay for that one official visit that they're already going to pay for anyway, or maybe, you know, it's not like a whole brand new thing they have to pay for or more an expansion of an existing thing. And that's the way they get this paid recruiting contact where they're bringing the player to campus on their dime and also the opportunity to work the player out to provide some instruction to see how coachable they are and to see how they, they fit as an athlete. Wouldn't it make more sense just to, you know, kind of charge the NCAA with setting up, I don't know, something that would be the, like the equivalent of like a, a scouting combine, like the, what the NFL does with the uh, draft? I mean, that would seem to be the most efficient way to do this. That's been talked about a while. It's, it's gotten legs in basketball. Um, I, think the, I think the problem is that it is seen as, like you said, this cost of doing business thing, right? Mm-hmm. So unless it's replacing something else, right? Unless it's replacing camps on campus or it's replacing a portion of the recruiting calendar, then it's just one more thing that coaches have to do where a lot of them are feel they're not going to get an advantage because every other coach is there. Yeah. So right. it's it, – and not for nothing, but if the NCAA does that, the NCAA – pays for that and that's more money out of the school's pockets basically because they get their you know they run the NCAA they get them the distributions from the NCAA and if the NCAA is paying for that it's less money available to go back to the schools yeah yeah fair enough fair enough I just it it always seems to me like there's so in my opinion there's such there uh, there's such little marginal value in in scouting based on what we've seen even on the NFL level that I feel like if they you know, basically just kind of uh, started housing all of that under kind of one roof that it would end up uh, helping everybody a lot more. But I guess they all feel like they really do uh, find uh, find those diamonds in the rough and whatnot. So I don't know. Uh, or like you said, it's not like in some cases it's not, you know, I think the thing with the satellite camps is that um, was it Pat Fitzgerald and Northwestern came out with their whole thing of, you know, we're running what is, a camp band under this. And they talked about all the coaches they bring for basically a big like Chicago yeah. area combine. Yeah. Um, but I don't think, you know, uh, 
Alabama sees its camp as a place to find diamonds in the rough. I think Alabama sees its camps as a place to bring re- top recruits to essentially give them a unofficial visit type experience or almost an official visit type experience um, that the player is paying for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and to get the player on the field, get interaction with the coaches in a football context and confirm what they already know about the player as a player and see if they're coachable. So I don't think it's, you know, I don't think Alabama's running that camp to, uh, you know, find the, the underrated two star. They're making sure that their five stars are going to be sure things and aren't going to be guys that blow up in their face when they get on campus. Got it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Then. That makes sense. So I want to talk about something else, though, that passed that got, didn't get as much fanfare until people realized that it was actually in there. And I know that you did a lot to kind of bring this to light, but. These new uh, social media rules, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of, I guess, um, you know, deregulation in terms of coaches retweeting and liking things that recruits say, like on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, am I am I characterizing that right? Yeah. So what the what this is is it's a um, it's an exception to three rules uh, that were all passed as part of this one proposal. Um, the biggest one is that it's an exception to the publicity of recruits. So previously, all coaches could really do publicly with social media uh, in terms of interacting with a, with a recruit was to follow and friend them. <laughs> and the rationale was that the publicity rules allow a coach to comment so far as to confirm or deny that they're recruiting a prospect. Um, They're not allowed to talk any further about the likelihood of them signing, how they fit into the team, that sort of thing. And for the record, coaches like this rule. I think people are like, oh, the NCAA doesn't want, you know, public recruiting. Like coaches don't want to be asked at every press conference, you know, uh, Johnny Smith said, uh, you know, he's committed to you, coach, but he's still going to take his visits. What do you think about that? Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. And we've seen that like with – you know, I think back to like Les Miles and Les Miles and Gunnar Keel. That if you get a coach to start talking openly about recruiting, especially when it goes bad, we're not going to like the results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, what the, the the Mac who made this proposal said is, let's take that one step further and say you can't talk about them, you can't actually produce content about them, but you can do more interaction. And the rationale is not really in keeping with this. Um, with this idea that you're just confirming your recruitment of the prospect, what the Mac is saying is, look, we have to go through all this social media activity, all the likes, all the retweets, all the Facebook reactions, et cetera, et cetera, and make sure that the coaches are not, the coaches are official accounts, you know, are not interacting with the recruits. So let's just get rid of that. And I just need to go read the tweets and make sure that they're not talking to or mentioning a recruit's name, and that reduces the monitoring burden. Um, they also threw in uh, competitions where the recruit is participating so that a basketball coach, for instance, could retweet what an AAU tournament posts on their official Twitter account, for instance, or and uh, a recruit's coach, team, or facility so that a coach can retweet uh, a high school account or a, coach, a high school coach's account. So yeah, you are correct that like we're going to see coaches now begin to interact publicly with recruits on social media. They're not going to talk to them in terms of 
writing messages, but they are going to be interacting with the content that the recruits produce. And I understand why a compliance person would like that, but God, this sounds terrible for coaches because, you know, uh, can you, Alabama will just hire a, you know, a fleet of interns or something to just sit there and retweet and like everything that every recruit's saying out there, right? I mean, like, this just sounds awful. Yeah, it's 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 not awful for like a, a, a anybody who actually like is a is a coach, you know, especially of a revenue sport at a power conference school. It's awful for the whatever the quality control guy or director of player personnel or their interns, um, you know, director of football admin or something like that who's going to have yeah. to do this. And I think though that you know we've whenever we see these things. There is gonna it eventually is gonna shake out to to what it's gonna be right. It doesn't always go to the the extreme. Um, certainly, you're gonna have schools that refuse to do it. You're gonna have schools that sort of dip their toe in. Um, you're gonna have schools that go the total opposite direction and do that. Hire somebody who just sits there and does nothing except uh, look at you know follow a Twitter list of you know three hundred you know three four hundred recruits or something like that and continually you know, click as many reactions and stuff as they can. Um, but the question will be how do recruits react to it? And I know Bud Elliott at SB Nation asked some of them on social media, and granted that's not maybe the most representative sample because mm-hmm. the recruits who are willing to talk to a recruiting reporter on social media are probably more in favor of this, but they generally liked it, and a lot of them uh, said they were going to pay attention to it. I do think, though, that by pay attention to it, they are going to see the difference between a coach and a recruiting, you know, a coaching staff that puts the time and attention to actually like interact like a normal human being. And those that are just, you know, might as well have a bot in there that, you know, have the computer science department write them a thing where, you know, I put in a recruit's name and every time that recruits tweets, make sure to, to retweet and like it, which somebody will do and which, will lead to uh, a number of embarrassing results oh, before God, it stops. I, that's the part that I can't wait for. Some kid tweets out like, a, you know, uh, I don't know, some porn or, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, a stack full of cash or something like that. And the official, I mean, just the user, yeah. if you look at the usernames that oh, some yeah. oh, recruits yeah. use on Twitter, like that's going to be a dilemma where it's like, well, we really need to like retweet this kid. But <laughs> I mean, his username has an F-bomb in it. Yeah. I, I don't I know if we, I don't know if, you know, Vanderbilt wants to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, I can't, man, I can't wait. I Actually, like. Now the more I think about this, as, as much junk as it's going to put into my timeline, it will be funny to see how somebody gets caught up in that. So, I'm, maybe I'm all right but, with that. But I do think I think the biggest like the biggest problem with this is that, um, and I know you're on board with this, but team don't tweet recruits. It just oh, got dealt a crushing blow because it. If you take recruits who are, you know, followed by the, you know, the diehard, the people who follow recruiting follow recruits. Um, the casual fan doesn't is not going, you know, on social media to go follow recruits and tweet at them. But if their stuff is now being injected into the feeds of coaches with hundreds of thousands, or even in a couple of cases, a million Twitter followers that are all fans of the school, it's going to be so much harder for that message of let them do the recruiting to get through, and just putting these kids out in front of that much bigger audiences means the odds that they are going to be put in front of more crazies is just that much higher. 
Oh, I'm uh, yeah, I'm totally with you. I hadn't even considered that part of it, but oh man, yeah. You know, and I mean I make I make it a point to do my best to mute out or or you know, get rid of all like recruit uh recruit you know t- uh tweets and stuff like that and accounts on my timeline and I oh god, this is just going to uh I I uh, um, this might this might drive me off Twitter for all I know. Uh, so uh you know, I guess um one other thing, a couple, well, there are a couple other things I was hoping we could talk about. Uh, APR, uh, you know, we, we saw the results come out today. Uh, you know, uh, I, I personally, I, I detest APR. I think it is just one of the worst things that uh, the NCAA, worst ideas the NCAA ever came up with. But uh, I, I guess, you know, I don't think I've ever heard you really weigh in on that. So since it's topical, I figured... Uh, why not get your thoughts on it? So I think the APR, if you, we need to go back, you know, more than a decade because that's when the APR was was introduced. And you have to remember at the time there, the talk about graduation rates was really one of two things. You'd have the federal graduation rate come out, which is a very kind of like, it, it's, very, it's a very tough measure. Um, every transfer you get in that you graduate, you don't get credit for. And every kid who's a 4.0 student who transfers for whatever reason, um, that it's a great student that you did a great job with, but didn't just didn't happen to graduate from your school and graduate somewhere else, you get punished for. Um, so you'd have that on one spectrum. And then you'd have the, the preferred measure of coaches, which you can quote as every kid who stayed for four years with me graduated. Which is, you know, really kind of cherry picking mm-hmm. from your cohort there about yeah. what you're gonna you measure yourself against. So obviously, we, I think we needed something in the middle because you know when you, no matter how you slice it, back then, the performance, especially in the revenue and borderline revenue sports, so your men's and women's basketball, football, baseball, ice hockey, that sort of thing, was pretty poor. Mm-hmm. And I think most of I think most people would agree that if we're gonna have if we're going to have amateur college sports, I think the best, like, even the most ardent defender of amateurism has to say, well, if, if what we're offering the athlete in exchange for giving up the revenue and income they could potentially make is the opportunity to get an education, like, it better be a real opportunity. And it, it better, we better give them the tools and the, you know, the, the kick in the pants to actually use that opportunity. Because the idea is you just bring a kid in, throw him in some junk classes, and if he falls ineligible, whatever, or he transfers and then fails out somewhere else, whatever, you then the athlete isn't receiving anything. Nobody can argue that the athlete is getting anything at that point. So I think the APR did a lot to bring attention to graduation rates and attention to how eligibility and retention lead to graduation rates. Um, I think, you know, the thing people have to remember at the APR is n- everything in the APR, everything in every academic rule is so data driven, um, maybe to a fault. So nothing the NCAA has done with APR, nothing the NCAA has done with, um, its academic rules doesn't have a bunch of data on, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of student athletes behind it. Um, the problem now is that I think the sole focus on the quantity of degrees or the or the quantity of APR points 
is no longer the issue. And now the issue has become the quality of degrees. I think NCAA schools have shown that they are pretty good at bringing in athletes, um, maybe even regardless of academic preparedness, and getting them a degree um, on their campus. But have they shown that they're good at getting, uh, getting those kids an op- you know, a better opportunity? Have they shown they're getting them a career? Have they're giving them the tools to succeed, you know, after sports and after college? And the problem is that the APR has sort of become, you know, this too big to fail type thing where it continues to grow, it continues to be tweaked. And now it's become an end on to itself rather than this snapshot way to enforce a 50% graduation rate in the only kind of real-time way we can come up with. It was a blunt instrument, and even with all these tweaks, it still remains a blunt instrument when what's needed is a much more kind of nuanced tool to ask school qu- schools tougher questions about not just are you graduating your athletes, but are you really are you educating them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not are you just throwing a bunch of resources into academic support, but are you you know, actually offering scholarships to kids who uh, are going to take advantage of the educational opportunity. The problem is that I don't see a way, I don't, I don't have an answer to that. I wish, you know, if I had the answer for how the NCAA could come up with a simple and easy measure of, you know, you stuffed all your athletes into uh, an eligibility major and yeah, you know, 75% of them graduated, but it's a degree that has no use um, or it's a, you know, it's a uh, general education degree that's really just, you know, take uh, 120 credits of courses Mm -hmm. uh, rather than, you know, building a body of knowledge. Um, That's really hard and it requires schools to, it would, any good measure like that, any good sort of way to enforce that or even to incentivize it, requires schools to submit not just their athletic departments to NCAA scrutiny, but their academic departments. And anybody who spent any time on a college campus has know that you know, the, the ivory tower does not do well when you want to submit it to outside regulation and scrutiny. Yeah. So I, I, I look at the APR and I think that, you know, how do you fix the APR? How do you improve it? while we sort of try to figure out what this other like magic bullet is going to be. Um, I think one of the big, you know, I look at a couple of the things like, for instance, I don't think the NCAA should give recognition awards for the APR. No. I think, you know, I, I think the NCAA wants there to be the carrot and a stick, but there really is no carrot. It's not like, uh, besides the, uh, we have t- not enough bull eligible teams, so we're going to be <laughs> yeah. five wing teams. I mean, there's that, but you can do that without giving it a public award. I think, you know, I think the NCAA either needs to put a lot more data about the APR out there or a lot less. Right now, it's just enough for people who want to to treat it as a measure of how good their school is, right? It's like another U.S. news ranking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our football team got a 975 APR, therefore, you know, you can't, like, say anything about my psychology degree and it's become this like revenue it's become this like competition onto itself yeah. uh, that you know and 
we saw with the Big Ten's new half their TV contract and sort of the idea that they're going to blow the SEC out of the water. Like, well, that's not the point. Like, the point of college athletics is not like to be a business. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even the people who even the people who say it is, even the people who want to pay athletes, even the people who want to divorce it from education entirely, it, it's at that point like it's still an entertainment product. The point is to win games. Yeah. The point is not just yeah. to make money, and money is supposed to be a means to that end. But it's become this competition again. Like, oh, you know, we lost the college football playoff, but uh, our our uh, TV distribution was bigger than the conference yeah. that our conference oh, team lost to. Oh God, it's too. pathetic. Yeah. Um, and now, like, well, you know, with the APR, it's like, well, you know, uh, we lost to our rival, but they had a 940 and we had a 955 APR, so we're clearly morally superior. Um, and then there's the coaching contracts, which that, uh. has, which is a difficult problem because it, it gets into the area of NCAA legislation that is on the shakiest antitrust grounds when you're, it's the, it's the place where the NCAA has been ruled against the most in terms of restricting the type of income coaches have. But some of these APR bonuses are not even really bonuses. If you have a coach with a APR clause in their contract that says they get a bonus if they're just not penalized right if they that's just a way to write in extra base salary while still saying you're keeping the base salary under x right so a coach with a 1.9 million dollar salary and a hundred thousand dollar apr bonus so long as he doesn't get banned from the postseason is a coach making two million dollars a year if he's even you know halfway paying attention to academics Mm -hmm. yes yeah and the the federal government actually got closest to banning this practice by uh, issuing an interpretation that looked for a second like it to just unpack this really quick. The federal government says you can't pay people bonuses for enrolling students because that is a bad incentive. Yeah, uh, if you're just going to try to use a bunch of like federal loans and stuff to sign people up for. Um, for classes they're going to fail and are never complete and then loans they're not going to be able to pay back that are guaranteed by the federal government. Um, What they've then said is, well, you can't pay bonuses based on how many people you graduate uh, because it's the same sort of thing that, oh, well, I'll get my bonus on the back end by just churning on the front end, right? Mm. And for a, and a couple of years ago, the Department of Education issued a, a rule interpretation or like a what they call a dear colleague letter um, that looked like it was going to rope APR bonuses into that. So actually, if you really don't like this, that's the, the probably the best avenue because you know if you involve the feds, you don't involve antitrust law anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can sort of say, you know. This is the type of bonus for this academic propo- uh, performance that ties into these incentives that we don't like, you know, when it comes to federal grants and loans and and how schools, you know, recruit students that are going to use that money. Um, I, all of that makes the APR a little better, but it doesn't solve the problem of the APR is a product of its time. I think that the state of the art has moved on mm-hmm. in terms of what the NCAA needs to be looking at. And while it's made the APR more nuanced, all that's really accomplished is made the APR, again, this end on to itself that you 
um, if not manipulate, at least massage, mm. um, or at least make decisions, not with the interest of graduating an athlete, but with the interest of maintaining an APR score, um, especially if you're close to one of the thresholds. Um, and how the NCAA gets to the next measure that starts to take in the quality of education that athletes are getting and what kind of opportunities they're getting, I just don't know what that bridge looks like. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. A couple years back when Notre Dame uh, had a uh, uh, academic uh, cheating scandal on the football team, I remember I went back and looked at – some of the uh, stuff that the school itself was putting out regarding, you know, team grade point average or uh, APR and all the stuff, you know, and it was, I, some of the language was hysterical. It was stuff like, you know, uh, Notre Dame uh, football team dominates APR. Like, literally, that was in a press release from the school, you know, and, and it mm-hmm. it struck me as, you know, if you wonder why kids, you know, would cheat or something like that at a school like Notre Dame, where they put that much emphasis on, well, of course. I mean, like, you know, if if you're going to be seeing this big failure because, you know, you're you get, uh, I don't know, you don't you, you don't you you can't pass, uh, you know, your calculus class or something. I mean, of course you're going to start cheating with the way that that that's kind of. Uh, that kind of culture, you know what I mean? Like it just felt like reading that it felt like the whole thing had gone so far off course and become this, you know, kind of marketing ploy again for the university. Right. And I don't, I don't think we want to go back to the, the days of 0% graduation rates. I don't think we want to go back to the, the time when a coach could, recruit without regard to academics, right? Mm-hmm. Use whatever special admission procedures the university would give them in order to get simply players rather than, you know, you know, people don't like the word, but student athletes, right? Like mm-hmm. kids who can do both. And and just have no consequences for that. I do think, you know, whether you whether you want to hold the NCAA's feet to its fire on its stated mission or whether you actually agree with that mission, it does it, – what's the APR has shown is that the APR, I think – I think the APR was effective at what it was designed to do. I just think it's it's gone so far. And again, like, like you say, the idea that the APR is like something that one can dominate mm. – um, It's it'd be like a person saying I dominated my tax return by like – figuring out how to get a big return like well uh, i mean yeah like you know you do your best to but the to, point you know, is save yourself hey, some yeah. money like the point yeah. the point is that this is kind of supposed to be this historical record of what happened over the yeah. past year rather than something that that drives policy in order to simply improve the measure right it, it was supposed to drive policy in order to um get you to think about graduation but again, the, the 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 biggest. I think if you want to just talk about improving the APR, except it's going to make the APR more about the APR, is there is no point in the APR that is tied to graduation. You can have a thousand point APR and a zero percent graduation rate. It's hard, yeah, <laughs> uh, but it's possible. And I don't think that should be possible in the APR. There should be one point that we hang on each kid's file over the six years that you know, we, we look at them or the five years of their total athletic career that, you know, if they fail to graduate, the schools they attended are going to lose a point. Then unless that kid gets a degree, 
you can't have a perfect APR score. And so if schools want to tout that we have a perfect APR, that should mean that should have like some relationship to a 100% graduation rate or a very high graduation rate at, at least. It, it shouldn't be able to be possible to have zero correlation between your graduation rate and your APR score. Well, let's look at this from real quickly, if you don't mind. I, I know I've taken up a ton of your time, John, but uh, uh, these, these are always really interesting, these conversations for me. So let's look at this real quickly from another standpoint, which would be instead of looking maybe at uh, you know, the numbers, the process, or, you know, the, the results, what if wouldn't – in a certain sense, wouldn't unionizing uh, be maybe a better way to at least, I don't know, maybe feel better about the way that this process goes down? Because, you know, if, if, the, if this was a case where schools and, you know, and advocates for the students were, you know, negotiating over – kind of uh agreeable workable terms for these kinds of things you know in terms of you know progressing towards graduation or what kind of you know resources you're being given uh, wouldn't that you know I, I, this is a different philosophical bent but wouldn't that be better maybe than what we're doing right now i think it makes people who are kind of um if you are certainly if you're a free market kind of absolutist right and yeah granted like you know most people who are super in the free market aren't super into unions but um i think a lot of people look at that as um i can feel better about the outcome because uh because the you know it's the product of negotiation right that um this is not uh, a group that doesn't include proper representation of another group imposing rules upon that second group, right? Um, what I what I suspect would happen in a unionization context is uh, every is that your judgment of the process is going to be based on whether or not you agree with the result, right? So if the athletes do well in a collective bargaining session, right? If they want to negotiate, um, let's look at you know the the less coursework or less uh, hours, you know, less than full time enrollment during the season uh, that was proposed by a professor um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, if they if they won that, people who would kind of agree with that will say, well, this is proof unionization works, right? Mm-hmm. If if they go into unionization in a collective bargaining agreement and um, the athletes don't extract enough concessions and let's say the the NCAA, the universities, the conferences, whoever's on the other side of the table gets a really punitive academic rule that they really believe in, right? I mean, these are still institutions of higher ed. Like even if if you believe they're putting on a face, they got to put on a face, right? I think people are going to say, well, uh, you shouldn't have uh, women's soccer players in the same union as football players, if that's what happened. Or uh, this process is illegitimate because because the bargaining power of the schools is too great, right? Mm -hmm. And 
they, you know, we shouldn't have allow them to to use this tactic that they use or something like that. And when people talk about unionization, I think, you know, they talk about oh a lot of talk about stuff strike and I anytime somebody says unionization, I remember like, well, if we're not talking about a very strictly tightly regulated bargaining process, it doesn't just include strikes, it includes lockouts. Yeah. 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 And if you're really, you know, all in on unionization being the answer and you really want like what that fully looks like, that means saying like a university is gonna tell a tell a student that, you know, potentially like not just can you not go into the the practice field in the weight room and you can't use the training room, but also you can't go to your class. Mm-hmm. And I think <laughs> You know, at that point, I think a lot of people would say if the universities win, that process looks illegitimate. So, you know, I think that the I look at the you know the the committee on infractions is another example of this where uh, there's a lot of process complaints about the NCAA, and almost all of them are tied to people not liking the result yeah. and trying to avoid simply railing against the result and looking like sour grapes mm-hmm. that uh, it's not that i dislike this result it's that i dislike the process that led to it like well no you know because the same uh, on the other side people turn around and say this proves the process works right mm-hmm. when we look at process improvements in the ncaa i think like making sure what happened in the miami case doesn't happen again that's a process improvement that is not tied to result. Everybody agrees that we shouldn't have something like that happen mm-hmm. again. Um, having more student-athlete representation is a good thing. But, you know, look at that social media rule. One, one of the two SAC reps voted for it, and the other one voted against it. So that's a student-athlete advisory mm-hmm. committee reps. Um, so, you know, there's... so. Unionization is not a kind of like answer. You have to explain the specific type of unionization. And I think if people sat down and said, if you could, you know, read minds or get somebody to articulate exactly what type of unionization they want, it's basically we have collective bargaining, but the athletes always win. And that's not how unionization works. And in fact, you know, when was the last time in professional sports that the, the athletes, like, uni- everybody said the athletes unilaterally won a collective bargaining session? Versus oh, how many yeah. times have we said the athletes were crushed by Yeah, the yeah, they, they consistently get stopped out, yeah. And I, I don't think people are saying, I feel better about all the same rules if they're uh, if they're imposed by the NCAA crushing the athletes in collective bargaining, what they're saying is they expect a different result. And if that result comes, I don't think the I think it's be cold comfort that it was a different process. Yeah, I don't know. I I just look at there, to me it feels like there's so much that goes on in 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 major college sports that lacks transparency. That I feel like you know. Uh, I don't know. I, I do feel like a union would be, in a lot of ways, uh, a, a better a better process because at least it would bring more transparency to a lot of these decisions, and and it, it wouldn't be this kind of uh, 
I don't know, a lot of ways it feels like just this kind of parlor game where, you know, the coaches are basically kind of, you know, given free reign to uh, make decisions on their own or, or schools are also, you know. I mean, I've never really felt comfortable with that, with that, with the way that process goes down. I mean, I, I, I would, you know, stretch it all the way even just to, like, disciplinary decisions. Yeah, and, you know, I think there's... There's definitely something to be said for maybe what you're describing is almost like, you know, definitely a watchdog organization. Yeah. Um, or, you know, an, an advocacy organization that maybe doesn't have, you know, the, the power, the mandate to collectively bargain, but has as the bully pulpit, right? Um, everybody talks about this with like Mark Emmert, where, you know, uh, that's his tool, right? He doesn't, the schools decide the rules. Um, his, his, uh, his role in that process is to use his platform to advocate for the vision of the NCAA he wants. And I don't, I, I think the thing that, the problem with a lot of the critics of the NCAA is that they have to recognize that um, the NCAA is the one that's sitting in the middle that's doing the compromise yeah. and trying to balance two sides. And the critics are on the other side and have to remember that there's somebody on the other side who wants who dislikes the NCAA as much as you do, wants to change it as much as you do, but wants to go the exact opposite direction. Yeah. For everybody who's full in on uh, you know, the Kessler vision of uh totally, you know, no rules about paying athletes anything and schools just make up their own decisions, there's the Ralph Nader who wants to get rid of athletic scholarships mm-hmm. and completely and go everybody go to the D three model. Um, and it's sort of like it, it, it helps to understand the NCAA to recognize that they sit in the middle of those two forces and are trying to balance them and that's why every decision they make can be criticized from one side or the other and is um, every decision they make is sometimes criticized by somebody whose heart is on one side but sees an opportunity to attack from the other Yeah, and that's not to say that the NCAA is uh, is always right or that it doesn't deserve that criticism, but it's not that uh, you as the critic, you, you know, like or one as the critic, that their position is the obvious one, and the NCAA is the crazy extremist who's you know off in the weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That the NCAA is trying it. It's the classic, you know, it has to compromise and therefore its position is compromised yeah. by that. Um, and I think that, I, I think, you know, to go back to the immunization point, there's definitely a place to, to kind of manage that balance. And there's definitely a role for, I think there may be a role for a union, Right in a in a very tightly regulated process to do a lot of the things that a union traditionally does. I'm just skeptical that uh, that one of those things is going to be crushing collective bargaining victories that lead to a radical transformation of the NCAA. I think it's more in the area of um, health and safety in the area of like you said discipline and making and the consistency there yeah um in terms of uh you know in, in enforcing all the areas of the rules where the ncaa 
the, the letter of the law says that final authority for whatever this decision is, whether it's whether an athlete keeps a scholarship or gets it renewed or uh, whether an athlete can transfer without restriction, um, rests outside of the athletics department, but the university is simply rubber stamping the athletics department's decisions. There's definitely a role for a group who puts pressure there to make sure that when the NCAA says the financial aid office is the final authority on scholarship, that the financial aid office has real power, yeah. that the admissions office has real power um, to make sure that athletes are prepared, that um, that you know athletes who want to transfer have a real opportunity to a- appeal outside of the athletic department that has their own interests to look out for. Um, but yeah, again, I, I just don't think that... Uh, you know, getting 50% of the uh, tournament revenue for men's basketball players is going to be uh, an oh. achievable goal. Oh, absolutely not. But I, I, I look at it more like you're saying. I look at it more – I think that, you know, athletes uh, – I don't know. It, it, there are a lot of times where I just feel like people kind of go off half-cocked with some of these ideas about policies, even when they're very well-intentioned, you know, uh, you know stuff – intended to, you know, um, dissuade, you know, uh, domestic violence or sexual assault, Mm -hmm. where, you know, a lot of, (laughs) in so many of these cases, you're, I don't know, it it just feels like it's too easy, I don't know, schools schools have too much discretion to Mm -hmm. pick and choose who it is that they want to enforce these rules with and, and, and when, uh, you know, if they're, you know, worried about, uh, you know, for example, uh, they might treat a student more harshly in a case when they're under a lot of uh, PR pressure from past incidents, for example, or, uh, you know, you know, or, you know, a coach sees an opportunity when a kid really doesn't do anything, you know, that, that another, you know, student, w- that another student might have gotten by with or another a- player might have gotten by with, but, he wants to open up the scholarship because the kid isn't contributing, you know, and he'll, he'll use it as an opportunity to kind of run the kid off. Those are the kinds of situations where it just doesn't, it, it feels like, uh, I worry that, that the, the system is it, it, not in the athlete's best interest at that point. Well, and that's, that's why there needs to, that's why again you talk about the the, the university being, um, you know, the university being kind of the backstop, and that's the NCAA's. Um, that's been the NCAA's kind of vision. Like that's their, you know, that's the idea of institutional control. Um, is that the athletics department is not sitting over there on the edge of campus, um, you know, just running rogue. That the the you know the president and the chancellor and the professors and the other administrators on campus, you know, across the way are keeping it in check. I think, though, that a lot of that has um, manifested itself or it's been expressed in policy as you have to have a policy for this, right? And we just saw a brand new one, again, in all these underrated um, proposals that, you know, the satellite camp proposal sort of sucked all the oxygen out of it. but. Uh, that says schools must now have a written policy about what happens when an athlete requests permission to transfer, 
right? And how that's going to be handled and what services they lose. Well, if my policy is it's at the discretion of the head coach, I have a policy. Mm-hmm. I have complied with the rule, but you know, if the idea is that students know or you know the athletes know what they're doing when they go in and ask for their release and they um you know, they do that at the end of the basketball season thinking like, okay, you know, my grades aren't right where they need to be, but I'm going to, you know, work with my tutor, get them up and transfer. And all of a sudden I'm told you don't have access to the tutor anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, well, I, I didn't know that because I thought I was on pretty good terms with the coach and I actually like, uh, you know, was not, or I caught him on a bad day. And the policy is it's his discretion about whether or not I get academic service. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, again, like, I think that's a great place for, that is a actual great place for a union to bargain. Like, that's the type of thing that I think a student-athlete union can collectively bargain over. I just, uh, the question would be, if that's a bargain, if that's a negotiation and there's give and take, like, what does the athlete have to, like, what are the athletes giving on that? Like, what's the, what's the victory for the, for the NCAA and the schools? And is it is it going to be proportional, or uh, to get consistent transfer policies, are athletes going to give up, uh, you know, any shot at uh, increasing, you know, their benefits that they yeah. get, yeah. like uh, the things the school pays for for the next five years, right? Yeah, which is the career of every athlete currently playing, and some that aren't. So. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a great place for watchdog organizations, and we've seen the in the past few years that um, you know that when it comes to transferring, that you can build an ad hoc one through the local and national media, um, putting a little pressure on coaches through social media, and uh, get more freedom to transfer. I think though that like. The problem is that that um, that helps high-profile cases. It doesn't help the women's lacrosse player, yeah, who can't marshal that kind of support. But a dedicated group can. I think if you look at what the the National College Players Association, Remote Humans Group, did, and the pressure they put on the NCAA that ultimately led to full cost of attendance scholarships, at least for the power conference schools. Um, that's an example of how that works. Exactly. A sustained campaign. I, I may take issue with their tactics about you know an athlete living in quote unquote poverty based on the size of their scholarship, um, and that definition. But eventually, that worked. And um, it, you know, it's not because they went and negotiated for it. It's that they put pressure on schools that had to go through all these steps of getting autonomy for a certain group of schools who then saw it in their competitive interests. And once those interests aligned, it fell into place. And I think you can see how, like how I think little else has been accomplished in autonomy that those big changes need that alignment of interest. And I don't know if the collective bargaining is the way to get those interests to align more consistently. Yeah, no, I think, and I think that's a, that's a pretty accurate read on it really. So yeah, well, interesting stuff as always, John. Thanks so much, man. Uh, you know, I, I haven't been able to have you on for a long time, but uh, these are always some of my favorite podcasts because I always feel like I learned something talking with you about all this stuff. It's been it's been really good having you on, man. 
Well, anytime. I'm happy to do it. All right. Thanks for awesome. having me. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again to our guest, John Infante, our uh, kind of uh, resident NCAA legal expert here uh, for joining us. And for the Blatant Homers and Podcast, I'm Alan Kenny. Take it easy. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.